Season 9 and Beyond the Plate is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. Ford's Gin, a gin created to cocktail. All right. We will start with a fun audio test we like to do here on Beyond the Plate. We like to ask chefs to name three of something or five of something. And so for you all, since there are two of you, let's go with three of something each. Katiana, name three ingredients John loves to use in his cooking. Onions, white soy. Oh, nice. I don't know. I'm just going to say A1. A1 sauce. Love that. John, name three ingredients Katiana loves to use in her cooking. Okay. Garlic, dangjang, and I would say bell peppers. Nice. All right. You both sound good. Let's do it. Hey everyone, I'm Caffeine. You're listening to Beyond the Plate, the duo season. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's culinary operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Six years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their communities. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, we're so glad you're back. This season, we're featuring some of the greatest restaurant and hospitality duos in the industry. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. I know Ian was more than excited to tell us about his love for their Instagram page a few weeks ago and trying to get us all to follow them, which I already did. Well, I'm glad you did. So you've seen all the great recipes. Now, I'm going to do a quick Little thumb scroll on Instagram at potato rolls. And let's see what I get. Uh-huh. You are bound to get hungry. I was just there Look at earlier today. Yeah, what do you got? What do you got? Sheet pan French dip sliders on Martin's sweet party potato rolls. Yum. Yeah, go try to make that. Looks awesome. I love a good French dip. Give me another thumb scroll. Oh, boy. Okay, here we go. Ready and huddle up for a classic Cuban slider on Martin's sweet dinner rolls. So Really the sliders, but I do love those little rolls. Been getting the long rolls, like the hot dog style ones. Oh, lately. we have those now in my house. Ella put those in our cart the other day at the grocery store out of nowhere. It was pretty funny. I was like, ah, perfect. On brand, if you will. Awesome. Love it. So, by the way, everybody, uh, last year, Martin's donated nearly 40,000 pounds of bread and rolls to charitable causes. So, before we go, I'd love to share how their mission encompasses more than just baking the best bread and providing good American jobs. They also believe in giving back to their community and the world around them. Through volunteering time and donating resources, they support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need, both close to their baking facilities and abroad. So to learn more about Martin's and check out some great recipes, go to potatorolls.com and follow them on social media at potatorolls recipe inspiration. Martins, we thank you. Hey everyone, one more thing. The team behind Beyond the Plate is excited to bring you a brand new podcast called Clean Play Club. Clean Play Club is a kid and family friendly podcast that is kind of like story time, but with recipes. Listen along as we share delicious dishes and tasty treats from chefs and celebrities who cook at home with their kids. Clean Play Club is a great way to get kids excited about food and cooking. Find it on all major podcast platforms and on Instagram at Clean Play Club Pod. Now, enjoy this week's episode. Today's husband-wife duo are the chef partners of Yangban, a Korean-American restaurant and super in the heart of downtown LA's Arts District. 
They showcase an autobiographical experience. Love that. That celebrates their respective backgrounds while providing a dynamic space for locals to gather. We will start with Katiana. She was born in Korea and raised in upstate New York. In 2014, she was named the first ever chef de cuisine at the restaurant at Meadowood in Napa Valley, becoming the only female chef de cuisine at a Michelin three-star restaurant in the United States. Wow. She went on to open Chris Costow's second restaurant in the heart of Napa, the Charter Oak, where she and the team earned a nod for the James Beard Best New Restaurant title, and she also brought home Food & Wine's Best New Chef. Those are just some of the highlights. There's more, but I'm excited to get this conversation started. Up next, John. He grew up in the town next to my hometown, Highland Park, Illinois. As a first-generation Korean-American, he spent time at the world-renowned Alinea in Chicago and several years later headed west where he met Katiana. We'll have to get the timeline here. You all see where this is going. He, too, worked at Meadowood where he maintained the restaurant's three Michelin stars for three years. He's been named a maker of the Napa Valley by a far magazine and in 2016 was named Asian Business Association's Chef of the Year. And let's not forget, they are parents, the adorable four-year-old Alessia. and behind Three and a half. There you go. And behind one of the last great meals I had in LA. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with a couple of overachievers, Katiana and John Hong. Hi, both. Hello. Hello, hello. Okay, I'm super excited to be here with you all. Thank you for taking the time. So much talent. I've actually had your guys' food in Napa and in LA. And quite frankly, I don't know if you knew this, but you two are some of the, one of the main reasons why we wanted to do this duo season. I actually had an incredible meal. I was talking to someone who works on your team and I was like, man, it would be great to do like awesome duos like that. Husband, wife, father, son, things like that. So not sure you knew that, but here we are. Let's jump into it. We like to start with the chef's childhood and where they came from and what they were up to and how that helped shape who they are today. So Katiana, let's start with you. You were born in Korea. How old were you when you came to the U.S.? I, when I was adopted, I was about three months old. Three months old. So very, very young. Okay. And to upstate New York? Yep. I think I flew into Albany Airport and I grew up in upstate New York. What town? It's called Clifton Park. It's kind of, you know, between Albany. I went to high school in Albany, but between Albany and like Saratoga Springs. My parents are from Glens Falls. Oh, amazing. Okay. I was actually just up that way like a few months ago. It's so beautiful. Very cool. Was so growing up there, was food a big part of your family? Yes and no. Yes, I guess, in that I took a lot of inspiration and from my Jewish grandmother's cooking. So that's something I've always carried with me and that kind of left a big impression. But then also no, in the sense of my mom doesn't really enjoy cooking. I think also when I was younger, it was just like a transitionary period of food, right? Like I think my parents had grown up where like TV dinners had come out and that was like a family thing to do and canned vegetables and like convenience, you know, was one of those things like the Betty Crocker cookbook and everything. So I had like a little bit of that trickling in with like canned peas and instant flake mashed potatoes and stuff. But then I also had a grandmother on my Jewish side who like made roasted duckling and matzo ball soup and latkes from scratch. So I think I had a little bit of both, but for the most part, like at our home, I was a takeout kind of kid. Chinese takeout, 
a lot of fast food. Did mom or dad cook or no? Mostly grandma. My mom did because like for as her duty. But I think as soon as we were old enough to be like, okay, I don't need to do this every night, she bowed out. My dad actually enjoys cooking. So as I was older, my dad did a lot of the cooking. But he's a very like meat and potatoes kind of guy. So we had a lot of roasts, a lot of putting things in the oven with like a can of some sort of soup or something and then just leaving it till we all got home from school and they're tasty they're good but there was a lot of repetition were you into food or did you get into food at any point when you were younger i did i've always been into food and it's really funny because i was adopted so i at some point in my life someone speculated like maybe she wasn't fed you know maybe like she was in like an adoption in an orphanage and they can't get to all the babies in time so like you're you know you're when you want a bottle or be fed you're not like someone's not getting to you as quickly as if you're in you know like a, a home with just your parents. That's not true, by the way, because my daughter is just as obsessed with food as I am, and she has always been fed. But no, I've always been very obsessed with just like food and how it's prepared and even watching other people eat and grocery shopping. And so I think I grew up a lot on takeout, but then I also started cooking for myself. John, my Chicago North suburban neighbor. My brother. My first, I grew up in Deerfield and my first restaurant I worked in was in Highland Park, actually. What restaurant? At Player's Grill. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Packing carryout orders and then butting my way into the saute station. You know, it was a little local family style restaurant. Uh, Talk to me about growing up in in Highland Park. Yeah. So growing up in Highland Park, I was the more or less uh, child of immigrants. My parents had immigrated to the Chicagoland area in the 80s. My brother was born in Korea, was I think three or four when he came to the States. They had spent some time in the city, which is where I was born, and eventually ended up settling down in the North Shore of Chicago and Highland Park. They had a family member who had settled down there. There was a dry cleaner right by the McDonald's in Highland Park called Zangler Cleaners. So that's where they had found work, settled some roots down, and that's where I grew up. Definitely a predominantly white Jewish suburb. Definitely challenging, I guess, growing up, trying to fit in and figure out a way to, I guess, fit in, right? There was not a huge representation of Asians in that community at the time, maybe a handful. Was food important to your family? Yeah, I think food is definitely a very big part of our family. I think it's one of the bigger moments for us to be able to kind of get together and actually communicate and talk. We're very much kind of a family of few words in the day to day. But when we do get down to sit down and eat together, it's kind of that moment for all of us to connect a little bit. That's cool. Who cooked in your family? My mom did most of the cooking. Same thing. She's always on some sort of diet or the other. I think Koreans have a really big belief in food being very important to your health and all of the consequences of eating bad food or good food or things that are good for you or what color the food is or what temperature the food is during the season. So my mom's somewhat of a health conscious cook. She cooked for us my whole childhood. And it was a mix of Korean food, a lot of just staples of kimchi and rice, but also some like random nods to like American culture. We'd have Taco Bell for dinner. We'd have Michael's, uh, Lou Malnati's, all the classic kind of Chicagoland meals as well. So it was a little mishmash growing up. It sounds like Katiana's grandmother, you have some like memories from there, Katiana, but John, is there someone that inspired you in the kitchen? Were you into food at a young age? Yeah, at a young age, I wasn't kind of like notoriously like super skinny and like didn't really get into food until a little later. I will say that my 
father's side of the family takes food and cooking very seriously, starting from his mother, who uh, worked in restaurants when she was younger and was just a very good home cook. So every one of her kids cooked at home, fed, and cooked very similarly. So if I were to say, I think my grandmother and my uncle, my father's youngest brother, were two kind of big role models. Every Korean household, you have a family member living with you at some point or other for extended periods of time. So there was a lot of cooking and for me to see a male, my uncle at the time, cooking was kind of like a spark, I guess. How young were you at that point? I was probably pretty young, like probably elementary school, second or third grade, if I could remember. Isn't Chef Costello from Highland Park too? Highland Park, yep. 10 years, 10 years apart, we graduated. So wild. All right, cool. So Katiana, what kind of kid were you? What were you doing for fun in upstate New York? As a kid, I mean, I was, I think it was athletic. I was into sports. So I did a lot of sports, swimming, like swim team, gymnastics. I was very active. I was well-behaved. I was like people-pleasing for the most part when I was younger. I wanted to be like organized and get good grades and do sports. And then that all kind of disappeared when I became a teenager. But for (laughs) my younger years, I was great. You trained competitively in gymnastics, didn't you? Yeah, for quite a while. Yep. That's a crazy thing, too. In what sense? Like, I'm sure there was a big gap there, like between when you train competitively and your time and your success as a chef. But are there like, do you see parallels from doing competitive gymnastics with work in the kitchen? For sure. The discipline, the amount of time it takes up where it's kind of like all or nothing. Yeah. I mean, training gymnastics, I mean, it was fun. But yeah, I think it's like a lot of stress for being that age because I realized like it's not like you're doing a team sport. Where, you know, if you lose, you all kind of, you lose together. And when you win, you win together and you have friends and you learn that dynamic of like helping each other out. Gymnastics is a weird thing because it's individual. So you're young and you have teammates and these girls that usually like share rides with and who you spend a lot of your time with outside of school and also on the weekends. But you're also like competing against each other. And you're also like at some points, probably, I mean, the big thing in gymnastics is if you get injured, you know, you're out for a while. So you might miss a whole season of competing. You might get left behind. You might not get to go to a different level. So it's, I think to be young, it's a little bit of an odd thing to be so competitive with your peers. And then there comes with, you know, the eating and the weight. You have to be tiny. You, I mean, looking back, you used to weigh yourself in as a kid every day when you got there. First thing you did log your name and your weight. And then there's choreographers who do your dance routines. And usually they have done ballet in the past or something. And I remember very specifically, one of them told me, you know, you need to lose a little bit of weight. And if you want to cut some pounds, I would suggest that you eat like one cup of steamed rice and one cup of steamed vegetables a day. And that's odd to tell a kid. So I think I've always too kind of had in my mind, like what is appropriate to be eating and how you should be eating and then how I really want to be eating. So when I started cooking, I think I just like let loose, like I eat whatever I want and like threw myself kind of into cooking with the same kind of, you know, like passion for it. You stopped doing that around your teenage years. Did you do any cooking in high school or did did you go to CIA from high school? No. So when I graduated high school, I, I tried, I went to Manhattan College in the Bronx. For God knows what. I don't know. I, every, I went to a private girls' school. Everyone was going to really nice schools. It just felt like the right thing to do. I literally, I think every school I applied to, I picked like a different major. I wasn't even sure. So I didn't last there very long. But no, my parents had tried to get me to go to CIA straight from high school because I always cooked at home. And I was always watching the Food Network and Rachel Ray, just like a 
constant stream of Food Network and cooking. And so they brought me to CIA thinking I'd be interested. And I just wasn't interested. I wanted to fit in. I mean, I was already like the only Asian person in my town. I just wanted to be like everyone else and do the right thing. And again, I, you know, I went to like a private girl's school. And I think one of the girls I graduated with is like in Congress now. And, you know, my best friend, <laughs> she, she, you know, a, a lot of them go Ivy League. So I wanted, even though school's really not my thing, I really tried to follow that path and kind of fit in. And then that didn't work. And I was like, okay, I think I'll try culinary school now. Uh, got it. How far into Manhattan College were you when you decided to give that a try. Honestly, I don't, I don't even think I lasted a semester. I think they called my dad, like my parents brought me, you know, it's, it was in the Bronx and I had friends at Fordham right down the street. And, you know, my dad, he like set me up with a little checking account, I think. And I think I went to class a couple of times and then they actually called my parents and said like, did she decide to go somewhere else? Did she withdraw? What's going on? And so my dad called me and I, yeah, I just been hanging out in New York City for a little <laughs> So I went home. I said, okay, I'm really sorry. I apologize. Like, had I just been mature enough to withdraw, he probably would have gotten some of the tuition back. But I, it was, like, just over that mark. So I said, I'm really sorry. I'm ready to go to, like, I'll go to CIA. Like, I don't know what else to do. And then he's like, well, I'm not just sending you to CIA. You just wasted all my money. So... They actually had me try a community college program just to see if I was really going to like stick to it before then going to CIA. So you go to CIA. Did you love it right away? I did. I loved it. I've never, because I, I just wasn't really into school before, but this was so easy for me. Like it was the first time I could not study and do what I wanted to do, but just kind of get by like in class just because I was interested. So... Yeah, I loved it. And it was the first time, too. Like, I lived on campus and everything. So it was really cool to be around a bunch of other people who were that, like, nerdy and into food like I was. Because before, just in high school, again, like, John was the same way. But we were the weird ones. Like, they're like, you go home and watch the Food Network? I'm like, yeah, I like it. But that was odd. So all of a sudden, to get to CIA and be on this huge campus full of kids who love the Food Network and people who want to, like, cook and eat and go out to restaurants. I loved it. Is there any, like, one thing that sticks out to you that CIA did for you that, like, helped shape who you are, like, as a chef today? I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, first of all, I mean, their equipment and the classrooms are crazy. I had never seen professional kitchens like that. So just to be able to go there and practice in these like beautiful kitchens with all this different equipment, and that's really wild. But no, I mean, I think just in a broader sense, it did teach me some discipline because I think I, for, I did kind of what I wanted to do. Again, after gymnastics, I'm like, wanted to kind of be free. And there is... CIA was a really good time for me to learn that balance of like, well, I like cooking and this feels fun to me, but then also taking it seriously, showing up on time, being in a uniform, being prepared, having all of your tools. I kind of took cooking from a fun hobby to like, oh, there is a certain level of seriousness here and professionalism and expectations if this is something you really want to do for a career. Got it. And then you decided to go to UNLV after? Again, here I go again. I was like, I'm going to get my bachelor's because I just felt like you should. So yeah, so I had a lot of friends who were transferring to Cornell after doing two years at CIA. And I just really wanted to get out, out of upstate New York go somewhere different. And so one of the suggested schools is UNLV for hospitality. So yeah, after 
two years at CAA, I transferred to UNLV. John, you went to culinary school as well. Did you go from high school or did you have a roundabout way? I actually had a, I had a similar path. I ended up doing about one trimester at DePaul over in Lincoln Park. Same thing. School was never a really, never was really a thing I was very engaged in or good at for that matter. So I struggled. I think growing up in District 113, you go to college after you go to high school. So that was the next logical step. I gave it a shot, did not do well, ended up really coming to culinary school as an excuse for dropping out of college. So obviously having parents that immigrated to the States, sacrificed a lot to be here, invested a lot in our education to go home and say you're dropping out of college is a difficult conversation to have. So I kind of switched it around and back pocketed it by saying dropping out of college, but I want to go to culinary school, not knowing what would come of it, but knowing that I had always had an interest in cooking and just giving it a shot. So wild. And you went to Chic, right? In Chicago? I went to Chic, which I don't think is there anymore, but say like Le Cordon Bleu program. And it was a little rough around the edges. I'm not going to lie. I do recall there being a hair salon on the first floor. I do remember walking into a lot of hair products and feeling very confused about that. But overall, it was a great experience. I think, was it the CIA? No. But it allowed me to same thing, get my feet wet, be around like-minded individuals that were very interested in cooking. And she had people from all walks of life, people that have been working in the hotel industry for 20, 30 years. People, I met the executive chef of Maggiano's who had been there once again, 20, 30 years. Kids like myself that had just came out of high school looking for a future or a path. And so I met a bunch of different people from all walks of life there, which was really cool. By the way, I too left Deerfield, went to a university for two years, and then left that university to go to culinary school. There's a pattern here. Yeah. There is a pattern. <laughs> well, because I think people forget that we still came up in the time where it was not cool to be cooking. It's either you're not smart enough to do anything else. Or you don't have money to do anything else or something bad has happened or something unfortunate has happened. So, yeah, you tried your best, you know, to make something else work, I think, before you realize you're like, damn it, I think this is what I do. Yeah, totally. John, after culinary school, you went to work at Alinea. You had externed at Alinea and then you went to work there full time after you graduated. Correct. Why did you choose that type of restaurant? It's a good question. So I think this was like the first foray into like really taking cooking seriously. I think culinary school to that point, that's still been fun, somewhat casual. It was like a class was at six in the morning. You'd be out by 10, 12 o'clock and then free to do whatever else you want to do with your day. When externship time came to graduate, I essentially started looking at all the best restaurants in Chicago at the time. Because I think there is definitely a level of competitiveness that both of us have. So I wanted to work for the best. I wanted to see if I belonged with the best. I wanted to see what the best felt, looked like, sounded like. So I played a, a few of like the quote unquote best restaurants in Chicago at the time. Lucky enough, I think the extern, they were only allowing one externship at a time at Alinea. The current extern was on her way out. And it just ended up kind of working right time, right place where they more or less replaced her with me, gave me the spot. And somewhat of the rest is history, I guess. Wow, that's crazy. How long were you there after school before you decided to leave? Yeah, this part of my life is a little blurry. 
But um, I externed there for a few months, ended up graduating culinary school and came back for about a year and a half. When I came back as a full-time employee, I started in the front of the house as a food runner, as most prospective cooks there do, because there was such a long line of people trying to get in the kitchen. You would wait your turn more or less as a food runner, which I thought was actually a great kind of way to do it and also a great experience as a young cook to see the other side of things so early in my career was actually really beneficial for me. That's interesting. That's pretty cool. There's this wild parallel. Katiana, I didn't realize your grandmother was, you had a Jewish grandmother, but like when I was reading up on you all, there's, so you guys use this like deli theme at Yangban. And I feel like I saw Katiana, there was inspiration from your days in New York, but really John's the one who grew up in this like primarily Jewish area. (laughs) <laughs> with not incredible delis, but some delis. And I'm guessing you that you guys have talked about this parallel somehow. So Katiana, you finish UNLV and then you go to LA to Melise? No, I, so I did my externship at Melise when I was at CIA. And that, I think it was like three months or something. You go and work somewhere. So I had done my externship at Melise. That was really tough. That was very intense. But at the end of it, I'm like, I kind of like that. I got back to school. School was boring. So I went to UNLV, again, ended up dropping out of that and just starting to work. So I worked in Vegas for a little bit, then just kind of got sick of Vegas and decided to come back to L.A. So I moved back to L.A. and then started working at Malaysia. I don't know which kitchens exactly you worked in in Vegas, but you worked in some pretty incredible kitchens up until now. Can you tell me what you think like makes a great work environment and like which kitchen that was? I think definitely the most influential kitchens are probably the kitchen at Melise and then the kitchen at the restaurant at Meadowood for sure. But you take something from every kitchen. When I was working in Vegas, I worked with somebody like an older, like seasoned veteran cook. And he was like, he was like wearing like shorts and like a ripped t-shirt and he had like long stringy hair. And he was like that typical old like bad boy cook. But he taught me how to grill at like a really high volume place. And I'll always remember that he was like super nice, super patient. And yeah, this was at like a big place in the Venetian. But I mean, they're crazy busy. They're just like pumping stuff out. So like getting on the line the first time in, in a place like that is really intimidating. But I learned a lot there. But at Melise, I think... As a young cook, again, because I did my externship there, when I went to CIA, I thought like, oh, this is professionalism. You know, you have to show up to class on time and in uniform. And there's long days when you're in the breakfast class. With, you have to be there at like some ungodly hour. And so I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Like, this is being professional. Then I went to Melise to do my externship, and I got a whole nother level of like intensity and professionalism. And, you know, Josiah's thing is he's always, it says it right on the wall in tile too, like in pursuit of excellence. Did you like that? I did. I've never worked in a place like that. I think I cried a few times, <laughs> like my first day. And I, looking back, that's mortifying. I'm pretty sure like my first day there, well, I did walk in with my CIA uniform and you have a toque on, you know, <laughs> like, you're, I don't know, they tell you to wear your uniform, which is mean. <laughs> and Brendan Collins was the chef there and he was from he's from London. He's British and he's he was like really intense and crazy and he's like please he's like take that off and don't fucking wear that again. I'm like, okay. And then I was like peeling carrots all night and then I think at the end he's like, What's wrong? Like I clearly must have had some sort of attitude on my face or something. And he's like, What's wrong? I'm like, I don't know. I just didn't think I was gonna come all the way to California to peel carrots. And he's like, well, what did you think you were going to do? Anyways, that was huge, huge eye-opening experience. It was 
challenging. I thought I wanted to quit every day. I cried a bunch of times. But yeah, when I got back to school, school was like so boring. And I kind of wanted to go back like to that environment, like after having a little time away and some reflection, I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to go back. And also wanting to kind of like succeed at that. I was so out of my element when I was an extern. I got like, you know, everything caught me off guard that I'm like, all right, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back and I want to be successful there. Wait, when you said I didn't come all the way to LA to peel carrots and he said, what do you, what do you think you were going to do? What did you say to him? Who knows? I think I started (laughs) crying at some point that evening though. Because I just turned how mortifying I would like, uh, yeah, I just wasn't prepared for that. I guess, you know, watching the Food Network, well, that's great too. All these little things have so much to do with how we cook and who we are because they don't make good shows like that as much anymore. But like just cooking, we were talking about this the other day. I just was so caught off guard, but then I kind of found it like addictive. I, for some reason I missed it, which I did not expect. John, you go west from Alinea? Yeah. So working at Alinea, I was, I think, 20 years old at the time. It was my first actual real restaurant job. And same thing. It was a big reality check. A lot of these chefs there had experience, were there for a reason, had a goal in mind, were very kind of focused on their careers. And at that point, I was just kind of getting my feet wet, kind of learning the ropes. And I got my ass handed to me, very much so, in a good way. Same thing, just understanding what your expectations of a job like that are versus what the expectations really are of a job at that level was a big eye-opener for me. Had me questioning if this is what I wanted to do for a living, very much so. Every day was a challenge there. Every day getting to service was a challenge. So after that experience, I kind of somewhat burnt out. I kind of questioned if this was the right career choice, what I was going to do with my life. So I had spent a few months kind of after my time in Alinea figuring all those things out and ended up deciding to move back west where my the rest of my family had already been. So my parents had moved while I was in culinary school. My brother had moved as well. So I'd been kind of on my own since more or less like senior year of high school, freshman year of college. So I was ready. I think the city kind of beat me up a little bit. I think being in a town where you grew up and having a lot of your peers at that point as like sophomores in college partying doing their thing was somewhat of a distraction for me, trying to balance, like trying to do that while also having a career that is so all-encompassing as cooking is. So I moved out West to kind of focus myself, rebalance myself and kind of pick up some of the pieces. And was Melise the first kitchen you went to? Yeah. So yeah, it was the same thing. I started, I spent like probably about a year here kind of getting settled in. And when I started to kind of get the itch again, wanting a job, needing a job for that matter, and understanding that cooking was literally the only thing I knew how to do. I started the same thing, looking at the best restaurants in LA, started applying, started staging, and ended up reaching out to Chef Ken at Melisse at the time, did a stage, ended up really enjoying my time there, feeling really good about it, and ended up joining the team there. Were you there, Katiana? I was already back and cooking and working there when John staged, and then came. So was he, yes, chefing you or were you yes chefing i think i think everyone in the kitchen was yes chefing cat for sure she definitely had a very she definitely I, yeah. I mean they don't let you touch anything i think you're just standing there it's so awkward you just have to stand there and watch and it's it's hard to just stand in the same place when they make you do that it's awkward so i remember you standing there in the way yeah. and you guys start dating when you're both cooking at no home. actually we were both in different relationships at the time i had a long distance relationship from someone from highland park Kat was living with someone 
So we were just acquaintances, coworkers for quite some time, actually, our whole time at least. We started dating in Napa. Oh, wow. But did you go to Napa to, uh, together? No. Cat <laughs> went first. Cat <laughs> went first. She was probably there four to six months ahead of me and ended up getting me the job there as well. Oh, so interesting. So I thought you guys like were this team and basically whatever city wanted to draft you, you were like this package deal or something. <laughs> I, but I wish. I don't <laughs> Love it. So Cat goes to Napa. You're at Meadowood. She helps you get a job at Meadowood. I love this. How would you say Napa's culinary scene is different than like the rest of the world? It's such a special place out there, but. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. I think Napa is such a special, somewhat insular place. For both of us as kind of vagabond traveling chefs, to find a place like Napa where you can set roots, quiet down some of the outside distractions of life was something we were both yearning for, somewhere to place roots, somewhere to really just focus on our craft. And a place like Napa that has such a high importance on agriculture and product and just the local community of people that care about what they do in somewhat of a small town vibe was something that kind of, I think, shaped both of our careers for the better. Did you think you were going to be there forever or did you both know you weren't? Absolutely not. No, I think we went as cooks and I thought maybe a year maybe a couple years. I think at some point I did decide like, I'd really like to be a sous chef here, like and take that next step and kind of commit yourself. But no, when we moved there, it was very much, it was another cooking job. You're going to go somewhere learn some stuff, see a new place, and then maybe, you know, think about where you're going to go next. I mean, you wound up being there for quite a while, no? Eight years? Quite nine some years? time. I yeah, think. almost nine years. Yeah, almost nine years. So was there a moment either of you knew that it was time to leave and do your own thing. What was that moment? Or was it built up over time? I think it was built up over time. The reason we stayed so long was I think just the challenges kept presenting themselves. I think we were so invested in the work that was happening there, highlighting the community, highlighting the valley, working with products that I had never seen before, creating somewhat of a narrative through food, running a a two-acre garden. These are all things that all chefs could almost dream of and never really be able to work with these kind of products and these kind of infrastructures. So we were just, I think, more or less two kids in the playground. This was the ideal place to cook in my mind, uh, which is what just kept us there so long. I think the turning point was when Kat got pregnant, when she got knocked up. I think that was when we were like, okay, where are we going to go here? I think the work we were doing at Meadowood was all encompassing. We spent more or less our whole days and nights there. And knowing that something would probably have to change or be adjusted, we started talking about what those things look like to us, where if we were to leave or go somewhere, where would that be? And I think those conversations started just getting a little bit more and more intense. And was your daughter born in Napa or back in LA? She was born in Vallejo. In Vallejo. Okay. When we were in Napa. So now you go back to LA with one-year-old in hand or not even one-year-old maybe and about to open your first restaurant what was that like it was definitely uh, a lot of unknowns we ended up just committing to move down to la after sia was a month old at the time so we said we're gonna have sia or i didn't do much for that but we're gonna have the baby we're gonna spend a month kind of packing up settling our stuff and just moving down and then moving down we didn't really have any plans of what was next we had a kernel of a few ideas 
We knew somewhat of what we wanted to do, but we kind of took a leap of faith and said, let's get down there, let's get settled in and start working on this project, uh, at which point we didn't know what it was. But we knew, once again, some kernels of what we wanted to do and what was important to us to highlight and do. And then the pandemic happened. Wow. This is wild. So it was more, the decision was more human life based and not let's go open our own place type thing. Yeah, I think it all kind of like meshed into one thing. I think professionally, I think we were ready to kind of start looking at our own place and what that meant. But also, once again, being parents, understanding, just trying to be a little bit more in charge of our time and our hours and kind of... Yeah, but it was a scary time. Yeah, very much That is one of the first time we had made a decision that wasn't based just solely professionally in a long time to choose to come back to LA to be closer to family to help raise our daughter yeah so that was a little nerve-wracking are there any chef friends you turn to for advice (laughs) no I mean we joke like when you work that much I mean you don't have a lot of (laughs) so again I was a very I was stressed out it was an uneasy time more stress than John yeah I wear stress very well but no, it was, it was pretty fun. It was a pretty stressful time. I'm not going to lie. We ended up moving in with my parents, which uh, was just also stressful. And Kat got to experience living in a Korean household for a few months. But also, when you have that drive to be a CDC or to be in charge, right? When you're like, it's competitive. Like, I used to look at other cooks, like, get out of my way. Like, I didn't care if someone quit. I'm like, great, then I'm going to take your spot. So when you're competitive like that, it's there's also like a need for control. Like, I want to be in charge. I Like, I've always had that. So with having our daughter and deciding just to like move and not know what we're doing and leave this place that we had been and leave our mentor and this pseudo family that we've had for a really long time and all the opportunities that it had brought us. I mean, we had traveled the world with that job during those nine years with Christopher and everything. I mean, that was scary because for me, I want to be in control of what's happening. So yeah, for the first time to be like, let's move closer to family because I think that's the right choice for our daughter. And then also like, let's just start throwing around ideas and I hope someone's interested and maybe, you know, and I'm wondering like, or am I going to end up, you know, doing something I don't want to do in a few months and we should have just stayed. And I was very stressed about that time. We talk about stress and how you wear it and things like that. All interesting. Katiana, tell us one thing you depend on John for. Could be in the kitchen or out. It's a long list. I mean, yeah. where do we start? Where do I start? Let me open this file. <laughs> Sometimes when I can't get the garbage bag to squeeze over <laughs> the garbage. <laughs> no, I would say mainly like, like balance, right? Like in terms, and I would say for home and for work professionally, John is a little bit more calculated, a little calmer, a little more patient. I would say I get very stressed out. I get very worked up. I go from like zero to a hundred very quickly. So John brings a level of like just calm and professionalism and kind of will get me back to a normal working level at a few times throughout the day. Yeah. John, how about one thing you depend on Katiana for? Dinner. I think, <laughs> fair enough. I think in the kitchen setting, there's a few things. I think one is accountability. I think Kat's a very highly accountable person. Personally, and as well as demanding accountability of others. I think great leaders have that quality about them. And I kind of consider myself a dreamer. I I sometimes get caught up in large picture ideas, things that don't always have a spine yet. I kind of like the unknown. I like playing around with tinkering with ideas and things. And cattle sometimes bring back to earth, make things a little bit more uh, focused on how are you going to execute that. 
dream of yours and just kind of keeping things in perspective on dreaming and being creative is good, but also understanding that ideas are nothing without the execution in mind. That's a good one. And I guess too, I rely on John to keep dreaming, right? Because I'll just get all caught up in like my list and my procedures and my SOPs and lose that, that creativity and that, you know, we're really busy, but you still need to take that, you know, this is what we do. You need to like push forward creatively and like, you can't just get caught up in scheduling. Like, you know, go back to what started this all, which is like ideation and creation and evolution. And so he reminds me of that a lot. I like that. So speaking of how are decisions made, I guess, take a new dish, for example, like do you all work on it together? Does one of you work more so on that? And then the other one comes in and they're like, when the hell did this get put on the menu or I think it's a highly collaborative process. I think the work we did before here at Meadowwood was also kind of like somewhat of the foundation of how we cook here, which is once again, highly collaborative. For us, the process is just as important as where we're trying to go because we are cooking in a style that we've never necessarily traditionally cooked in before. You know, we're taking a lot of personal anecdotes, personal stories, personal feelings of coming up and being Asian American and me growing up in a Jewish community, Kat having a Jewish grandmother, a lot of these ideas and trying to funnel it into something that makes sense is singular, has been the work really. And it takes kind of both of us, both of our perspectives to kind of nail it. When, and when we nail it, you feel it. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a collective different. kind of collaborative process for sure. I mean, Yangban is still, I mean, it's a pretty young restaurant today and crushing it. What do you know today that you wish you would have known when you opened? I mean, it makes sense silly, but I, we were just talking about this the other day with, you know, we're doing like a little design refresh this summer and it's, and it's by no means like redesigning or it's really like a natural progression and an evolution, which we always plan. Like, I, I think John said it best when he said like Yangban for us, just, it was a conversation starter on culture, food, identity, being Asian American, challenging restaurant norms. It truly was a conversation starter. So I think while we have evolved and made a lot of changes in in a very quick time, in less than two years, we feel like it had to happen that way. And that every step of the way, just like kind of your process of cooking and traveling and working with different people, they're all important. There's no singular experience that's necessarily more important than the other. And so I, I don't wish I knew anything different. I think the things that we have maybe realized from last year, they had to be realized, though, and it had to happen organically. So, I mean, I think I'm grateful that the evolution has continued to go and that we've been given the opportunity to evolve, really, and to figure this out and change and work at it. Hey everyone, I want to take a quick second to give some love to our friends at Ford's Gin. If you remember earlier this season, we mentioned they are presenting sponsor of Beyond the Plate for season nine, and we had some really fun things ahead. We hope you've been tuning into our Beyond the Drink episodes every other week right here on Beyond the Plate. We've had some awesome bartenders coast to coast from Oakland. We've had some from LA. We're going international a little bit this season. So we have some great episodes coming up with a duo out of London. We have an excellent bartender out of Australia, so please stay tuned for that. It's really refreshing, to be quite honest, to hear 
from all these bartenders around the world as they share their love of Ford's gin, of Simon Ford, of what they've done for gin in the bartending community. So it's really excellent. Yeah. And I've even learned how to make a proper daiquiri the other day, Kathy. Oh, yeah. that was a good one. The Nashville duo. Yeah. So here's the deal with Ford's. We all know seeing a bunch of different gin bottles at a bar restaurant or liquor store can be a little daunting. So Ford's gin was crafted by bartenders for bartenders and at home bartenders alike to make a really good gin cocktail. And I have a couple of really good stories actually off this cabbie. My wife's colleague listened to an episode, went to Singapore where she had heard about a Ford's gin cocktail from beyond the drink and she ordered it. So it was a 10 out of 10. Actually, she said 11 out Love of 10. It. Right. And then the other thing is it's for at home as you just mentioned, I brought a Ford's bottle to a friend's house to make at-home cocktails. And he said, I already have a bottle. So, of course, we made at-home cocktails with it and they were delicious. That's funny. I, I, honestly, dude, like that's one of my favorite parts of doing this podcast is when people hear about Ford's, you know, our partner we work with and they get inspired by it and they travel internationally. I mean, this person was in Singapore and was able to experience that, which is really cool. Anyhow. Simon Ford, who's been on the pod twice now, noticed bartenders had various go-to gins for different classic gin cocktails and thought, why not make a gin that bartenders could use that would work perfectly in all of these drinks while keeping it at an accessible price? So that's what he did. We'll let you get to the episode or back to the episode, I should say. But really quick, one of the things we love about our partners here at Beyond the Plate is how they all give back and Ford's does so within the bartending community, which makes complete sense. They've also supported events and fundraisers and continuously have the bartending community in mind. So if you'd like to learn more about Ford's Gin, go to FordsGin.com and follow them on social media at Ford's Gin. Please drink responsibly. Ford's London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Ford's Gin is a registered trademark. Ford's Gin, we thank you. And now back to this week's episode. I am a sucker for gin and a sucker for gin these days for sure. And I believe when I was at the restaurant, I had that Blossom cocktail on your menu. I think that's the one I had, like the mm -hmm. white Negroni-esque with some sesame action. Do you both work on cocktails? Do you have a bartender? It's a cool program, how you do the bottles and everything. So we actually work with a gentleman who was a friend of a friend. His name's Dave Purcell. We worked with Dave very closely on kind of crafting the Young Bond bar experience because I know, well, we knew we wanted to do something a little bit different. We knew we wanted to do something that kind of stripped down a lot of what traditional bar programs are and what's expected of traditional bar programs. And we knew that we need someone that we needed someone that was very proficient in beverage in service to understand what could get stripped and what couldn't and playing around with some of the inefficiencies that we found in traditional bar programs, especially during the times being in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, totally. That's cool. Apologies. I don't know if they're all bottled or many of them are bottled, but was the bottled because of the pandemic or something you had in your vision? Well, it was a little bit of both. I think we came into this idea knowing this restaurant, knowing that we wanted to do this kind of Jewish deli vibe, a la Once Upon a Bagel, a la some of the places that Kat ate growing up. So we wanted this grab-and-go kind of feel. Uh, we were heavily inspired by a few restaurants in LA, Jones on 3rd, Justa. And we wanted to kind of explore if, once again, if two Korean-Americans had opened a deli and what that would look like and what products would be highlighted and you know what pickles would be highlighted and what the style of food would be like. So we had always envisioned something of a grab-and-go 
something of more of like a small format, airport bottles. We wanted it to feel fun. We wanted it to feel reminiscent of some of the food stalls in Korea, traveling abroad, just eating on the side of the street. And that's kind of what we were trying to explore with the super and being inspired by local neighborhood Korean grocery stores as the kind of jumping off point to it. I love that. Okay, so since opening Yangban, you've received the following and then some. James Beard, Best New Restaurant semifinalist. One of Bon Appetit's top 10 best new restaurants in America. Condé Nast Traveler's Best New Restaurant in the World. Esquire's Best New Restaurants in America, with you both honored as Chefs of the Year. Pretty great list. But my question, how important are accolades to you both? I mean, both having worked in three Michelin star restaurants, I have to imagine they mean something. I think it's a couple of things. I think accolades mean they're good for business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a part of it we want to run a healthy business, right? And I, I want to give opportunities to our team members and our staff and continue growing and providing more opportunities. And so those help just get people in our doors and maybe reach a different audience, get some new guests. Another side, I mean, I don't think it's as much about accolades as it is just acknowledgement for your work in your time and your ideas and maybe your contribution to this industry that for us like when their awards kind of acknowledging those things those mean a lot to us because cooking is a trade we love it we're hands-on tradespeople work we're workers but as we've evolved as we've started a family there's a lot more things that go into the ideas and the decisions that we make and how we run our business and things that, you know, have a lot more to do than just the creativity and cooking. Again, we try really hard to, you know, we partnered with someone that we knew provided great health insurance for everyone. That's really important mm -hmm. to us. Creating opportunities, reevaluating some of the traditional models and systems and trying to make a more equitable workplace. You know, we both have said we love working a lot. We're very intense. We love the militaristic pressure of how we came up, but we also understand that's not how everybody works. And wanting to create a space for people to learn, become cooks, pursue their passions, but also have other life balance. I mean, I think that's important. You don't have to do things one way. You don't have to come up one way. So anyways, we work really hard at trying to be well-rounded, at trying to look at things in other perspectives. This definitely is not just about like ego cooking for us. We're trying to do something good for a community and be like positive members of the community in other ways than just food. I mean, food is our language, I think, and that's how we'll get there. So if something acknowledges some of that work and just trying to be good people and make good food and provide opportunities for others, that's important. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a duality to awards. I thought, I feel like in basketball, there's a championship at stake. In baseball, there's the World Series. I don't think personally for me that cooking is a competitive thing in general. Being the best restaurant in America, what does that necessarily really mean? With that being said, I think for me, receiving acknowledgements, receiving awards for the work we're doing are more or less like points of encouragement for the work we're trying to do. It just helps us get through those tough days, those tough weeks of running a business, being in charge of 40 to 50 people's livelihoods, having the pressures of running a restaurant day to day are no joke. So for me, I use those as things to kind of, once again, reinvigorate, refocus you on the work that's at hand, the task that's at hand, the ultimate goal. And that's where I think the awards and stuff have a lot of meaning for the work we're doing here. 
bringing awareness to some of the work we're doing here. And all those things are a win for us, for sure. Yeah, I like that. What's next for you both and Yang Pan? Do you miss fine dining? Yes, I think we'll always have a fond place, I guess, in our hearts from fine dining. And honestly, we do still explore a lot of elements of fine dining here at dinner at Yangban. So I don't think that part of us will ever die. But yeah, I think we do miss like the ultra high end stuff. It's amazing. Sorry, I have this habit of like asking a question and then asking a follow up question, which is not similar to the first one. And the first one I asked was what's next. So let's go back to that. <laughs> you mentioned a little bit of a redesign, huh? Yeah, well, yeah, immediately we're currently working with a designer who actually lives in the lofts right behind the restaurant and is a guest of ours. So it was just like a, a real natural collaboration. And yeah, it's fun because we're getting to do some of the things we kind of skipped over the first opening due to the times and what was happening. Hopefully working with some other Asian American artists, buying a few art pieces, installing some new furniture, getting some wooden tables. And yeah, I think that's exciting. That's this summer immediately. We are cooking in Napa in August. So that's fun. We're going to be back at the Charter Oak. So and we're bringing our daughter. So that'll be the first time that we are all back in the Napa Valley, which is great. And then yeah, I mean, I think we're just really excited to keep pushing the menu forward and developing really like our cuisine. Love it. Social impact and giving back. You know this, the podcast celebrates that with all of our guests and learning how all of our guests do it truthfully is what keeps us going. I know that you all can probably do a different charity event every night of the week, giving away 300 portions of something or gift certificates to the restaurant and all that jazz. But I know everyone has or does it in their own way. So I would love for you to share any specific causes or charities that you work with or have worked with so everyone can hear. Most recently, we've done some stuff with Regarding Her here in LA, founded by like two women, chef, restaurant operators, owners. It's a great way to get women in the industry together to support other women. And then throughout the year, they picked different things. The most recent dinner we did with them was all-female Asian American chefs for AAPI month. And that's great. We have done some demos and kind of collaborated with uh, Skirball, which is the Jewish Cultural Center which I love. My grandmother would love that. I think that's amazing. I actually, we're just in the process of starting a collaboration with Beverly Kim, and she's doing a program to help mentor mothers in the industry because it's really hard to have a family and balance being a chef or being a manager or whatever you're doing in the industry. So I'm really excited about that. I think we're just getting started. I know she does it in Chicago, but we're she's branching out to LA. So she asked me if I would want to participate. And of course, so I think they're taking applications now. And then we'll mentor someone and hopefully help them navigate having a family and motherhood and while still working. We do Julia Wong and Ellen Chen, Stop Asian Hate. I believe we've done some stuff with them. It's really amazing. It's a great cause. And then she's also just like wildly creative and fun and current. So we've done some events with her. Like I said, you guys can do something every night of the week. <laughs> no, exactly. you can. Every night, right? No, but it's really fun to do ones that you feel passionately about. So we're going to host us for a second year. Again, Ellen Chen, who was a founder of Mendocino Farms. She is on a board and they help develop Asian American curriculum for school. And so we're going to host a dinner with them. Another one I love, and you know, I'm not going to front, I'm not going to lie. I haven't donated to them in a while. 
just because we're insanely busy. But prior to opening, just because I love their story and what they do, um, Know Us Without You. Oh, yeah. Have you heard of them? Yeah, we had a couple LA-based bartenders that talked about them. Yeah. And I love that because they're helping people that are like they're currently working in our industry, but still are not making ends meet. They maybe got behind during the pandemic or had something, a medical emergency or something, and they're living check to check and something got you a little off track. So it's for people currently working in the industry who need a little help and assistance. So we used to make like ragus and everything and drop them off. And I need to circle back with them. I haven't done anything with them in a while, but they're great. There's so many things, but I mean, I think this year we focused on a lot of Asian American organizations. You mentioned something you haven't given to them or in a while, but I always say this to people listening and I'm going to say it again and to you all like you don't have to give all the money in the world. You can give a dollar or more. You can give your time a certain amount of time per month and you can use your voice. And it sounds like you're doing all those things, which is truly incredible for anyone listening. You know, you could pick one of those things just because you're not writing a massive check doesn't mean you're not helping an organization. And so it's one of the restaurateurs and chefs happen to do all those things just by virtue of like they own a restaurant that was providing food and time and money from the restaurant. But, you know, you just rattled off a number of incredible things that are all extremely meaningful. And I think what I'm gathering is that when you do these things, it it feels good. You know what I mean? Sometimes you get more out of it than you put into it in a way. Well, thank you for sharing all that. That was incredible. Let's do a quick speed round and then we'll close it out. Number one, what did you have for dinner last night? Let's start with Katiana. Or if it's the same thing, that's fine. No, oddly it's not. I had, I made like a kind of like a deconstructed wonton filling with like ground beef and like a squeezed tofu, onions, garlic, some corn, because corn just came in the season. And then I fried a bunch of like wonton chips and kind of ate a de- deconstructed fried dumplings. Love that. I had a lot of Prince Street pizza. <laughs> a lot. That's it. <laughs> Name a smell in the kitchen you love. I mean, the typical one, I think onions and garlic. Okay. Yeah. Um, like simmering, I, roasting, yeah. cooking. Onions, I'll say a garlic. really weird one that's always stuck with me is just the smell of passion fruit. For some reason, reminds me of the kitchen Zetalinia. I don't know why, but uh, a lot of passion fruit. Passion yeah. fruit is like something that always I don't know why it brings me fond memories or sparks something. How about a smell in the kitchen you hate, Katiana? I've just been accustomed to a bleach. Like it, it's too strong. It kind of gives you this weird feeling. So anytime I smell bleach. Sometimes like a lot of unlit charcoal kind of like messes with me. Just like a lot of smoke. It's a little too intense for me. What pisses you off in the kitchen, Katiana? What We're going to have a whole nother episode for this. There we go. Join us next week. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Right, exactly. I mean, lately, not putting things in the correct garbage bin. You know, there's recycling, (laughs) there's food waste, and then there's garbage. And I'm telling you, every day it's all mixed up. Yeah. John? What pisses me off in the kitchen? Oh, man, a lot of things. I think for me, it's... I'll just say more of a larger kind of thing. It's just like when cooks refuse to work together, it, I think, drives something in me that growing up, 90s Bulls, Phil Jackson, Michael Jordan, just understanding teamwork. And for me, when we don't do those things, it's really hard for us to be great. So I think I would say when cooks refuse to work together. Yeah, good one. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Me first? Everything. I think being in the kitchen is my comfort zone. I think life gets hectic, but for what I find is once I get back into the kitchen, things kind of normalize and settle down. So I just like being in the kitchen. I'm very comfortable there and everything about it. I think I like I like that little that like little small window when everything is set up and clean right before service starts. 
that like all day you're kind of pushing, pushing, pushing and like half set up and half still cleaning and breaking down from staff meal. But there's just like a little window where things are just set and nothing has happened yet. So it looks really nice and orderly and everyone's kind of like taking a breath. That little period is really that's cool. Nice I like it. All right. So we started the episode with ingredients. You both, you said that the other love to use in your cooking. I want to hear one we'll never see in your cooking. John, is there an ingredient we will never see in Katiana's cooking? An ingredient you will never see in Katiana's cooking. Huh. Whew. On the spot here. An ingredient she would never use. I got to think about that one. Why don't you go first, Kat? I'm going to think on that. Do you have one for him, Kat? Well, it's not that he never uses it, but... John doesn't like mushrooms or raw tomatoes. So they're not often present in his cooking. He does them well, though. You make really good mushrooms. Thank but you. if just like doing something creative and for himself, he will eliminate large chunks of tomatoes and mushrooms. Everything's on the table for you. What don't you like to use? Like, Nothing. You use it all. I always say beans. I don't love beans. beans. Okay. But that's not true. I do sometimes. That's yeah, everything. I don't really have anything. That's true. Closing it out, there's a theme here this season, obviously, of duos. But how about any advice for future duos going into business together? Could be kitchen, in the kitchen or not. I think for me, it's trying to carve out some roles in, one, highlighting what each other do best, but also trying to help amplify and balance the things that we don't do well and just being a good teammate and communicating. I think communication is very key, verbal and nonverbal, being able to be on the same page and making sure that when we're not on the same page to try to get back on the same page is really important. That's great. Love that. I think I would, maybe not advice, but just, yeah, I guess advice. Um, just that idea that like everything has to be perfect or if you work together it's because I oh, we just love working together and everything goes right like I, that's not what it's about at all I actually think when you find someone to work with or a partner to work with it's about holding each other accountable it's about having a different perspective it's about balance so like that idea that everything will be great and that's why we work together or that's why we're partners I think it's actually opposite you should be partners with someone who challenges you someone who yeah questions your decision questions your perspective i like that thank you both i thank you for your time i loved hearing these stories they were so great and excited to get back for i'm just going to call it yangban 2.0 even though it's not a full-on you know 2.0 yeah fair enough thank you both i really appreciate your time of course thank you thank you for having us thanks again to chefs katiana and john hong Find Katiana on Instagram at Katiana Hong. Find John on Instagram at John M. Hong. To learn more about Regarding Her, go to regardingherfood.com. To learn more about the Skirball Cultural Center, go to skirball.org. And to learn more about Know Us Without You, go to knowuswithoutyou.la. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is also on social at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Mead. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you have a moment, would you be so kind as to rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice? And don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. And also our brand new podcast called 
Clean Play Club. Clean Play Club is a family-friendly podcast that is kind of like story time, but with recipes. You can find it on all major podcast platforms and on Instagram at Clean Play Club Pod. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.